Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. David Neward is a journalist and author who's been covering extremists on the far right for decades. He has appeared on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Newsroom, and The Rachel Maddow Show. His work has also appeared in The American Prospect, The Washington Post, MSNBC, Salon, and many other publications. He is the author of numerous books, including The Eliminationists, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right, Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories that are Killing Us, and his upcoming book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Ongoing War on Democracy. Neward has won numerous awards for his work, including a National Press Club Award for Distinguished Online Journalism. We're thrilled to have him join us today. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. David, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Pleasure, guys. Hope your day is going well. Oh, it's going great. A lot better now. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about in the past decade, we've seen the increasing rise of the constitutional sheriff's movement, which is an ideology that holds that the county sheriff is the highest constitutional authority. Here's Richard Mack. Well, who decides? Okay, so when I take an oath to tell the truth in court... Who decides what I will say? Do I say, oh, well, I have to check with the judge first. Oh, no, I have to check with the legislature first. Oh, no, I have to check with my supervisor first. No, whoever takes the oath is the one who has to decide. It's his oath, okay? He's responsible for fulfilling that oath. What we say is he must know and understand the Constitution, so when he's forced into that predicament, He'll know what to do. He'll know what side. Because what side do we take in America? Always with liberty. A decree from the governor does not supersede the Bill of Rights. It does not supersede the Constitution. I must know and understand that before that happens. Members of this group are refusing to enforce laws they deem to be unconstitutional, such as restrictions on guns, COVID-19 mask mandates. Richard Mack, the head of the group, told the Washington Post not too long ago that about 300 of the nation's 3,000 sheriffs belong to the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, or CSPO. Where did this idea originate, and how do you see this playing out? Well, I I actually first saw Richard Mack back in 1994, 95, at, at a Patriot militia gathering in Bellevue, Washington. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I went there with uh, Eric Ward, who's now the director of the Western State Center there in Portland. And uh, But back then, Eric was an investigator for Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, it was pretty easy to go into that with Eric, uh, being me being a kind of anonymous-looking white guy and him being this large black man with dreadlocks. Uh, (laughs) All the attention was drawn to Eric. But yeah, Richard Mack was the main speaker that day. And he also had along with him his then sidekick, a guy named Jack McClam, who was the former police chief. And these guys are both uh, spouting this constitutionalist stuff, which had its origins, of course, in the posse comitatus, but the version they were preaching was this sort of Mormon-based version that uh, Cleon Scott devised in the 80s that tried to whitewash out the overt racism and anti-Semitism that was innate to the Posse Comitatus ideology. And so this is what was a Second Amendment gun rights rally, supposedly, but they were there to talk about organizing militias and recruiting law enforcement. And that was what McClam did, was he ran an organization that was directed at recruiting police officers. And from that idea, uh, McClam's organization fell apart in the early 2000s. Um, he kind of receded from the scene. 
but Mac kept organizing, and around 2008 or 2009, he organized, he formed the uh, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, which was basically the same concept, uh, but directed really at sheriffs. Because, of course, in the constitutionalist ideology, the sheriff is the supreme law of the land. Right. So that's, and that's what they, because <laughs> <laughs> that was what they began preaching to all these uh, county sheriffs around the country. Can't imagine they had too hard a sell with that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, some sheriffs knew better, but a lot of them didn't. And, you know, we did a, when I was working for the Southern Poverty Law Center back in 2015 or so, uh, we did a survey of all these sheriffs around the country, find out how far CSPOA's influence had spread. And we got really poor participation in that survey. Uh, a lot of sheriffs were would just hang up on us on the phone, especially ones that we had found on uh, Richard Mack's list. You know, he had a list of members, and so we would call some of these guys up. And and a lot of them would refuse to talk to the SPLC. <laughs> so that was that. Uh, but but we found that it it was basically had spread to all fifty states, and there was basically a constitutional sheriff in at least one county in every state in the country, and and in some states quite a few more. Right. <laughs> and it's just continued to spread. Of course, they took a very active role in the. 22 election by getting on board with the election denialism uh, bandwagon. And they had, you know, one of the appeals that went out among members of the CSPOA was for sheriffs to monitor their elections closely. Uh, (laughs) And they didn't turn out, it didn't turn out to actually be an issue because they didn't actually, you know, seem to have actually interfered with anyone. But there you have it. Yeah, I didn't realize it went back that far. I thought it was a more recent thing. I didn't realize it went back to the 90s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Mac, Mac first became famous in 91, 92 by being the guy who took, no, it was actually 93. He took uh, Bill Clinton to court over the, the gun ban. Oh, the assault weapons ban, right. Oh, assault weapons ban, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, he did that in 93 and he succeeded. Uh, and this made him an NRA celebrity. He was a keynote speaker at the NRA convention that year. But what nobody understood at the time was that he was he was not just NRA fodder. He was, um, you know, a constitutionalist, which is another thread down the road. I mean, they're, they're actually – the reason he was speaking at this place in Bellevue was that Bellevue was the headquarters of this outfit that's also – does nationwide organizing called the Second Amendment Foundation run by a guy named Alan Gottlieb, who's based there in Bellevue. And Gottlieb, like Mac, is also he's he's further, further right than than the NRA. They constantly criticize the NRA for being too soft. Too soft on these things. <laughs> there's, wow. There's always somebody that's further further right and more extreme, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it goes back quite a ways. I mean, this is this is pretty deep rooted, and yeah, it's one of the things that's kind of easy to underestimate in our current morass is that you know this all feels very new, but uh, it's been building for a really long time. Right, right. Wow, that's uh, frightening. How much worse is this going to get with the sheriffs? Do you think? I mean, it seemed like they were starting to throw their weight around with the COVID restrictions somewhat. I mean, I live right north of Seattle, Snohomish County, and we've got one, Adam Fortney up here, who's a big, not going to enforce that kind of stuff. He was also more problematic. He he was actually really problematic when we had the uh, militiamen running around (laughs) in downtown Snohomish. Mm. Uh, You remember (laughs) that? Uh, Because they had heard that Antifa was coming out. Oh, yes. Uh, Yes. Yes. <laughs> we had hordes of guys with Gazden flags and Trump mm. flags and AR-15s running around in their pickups in downtown Snohomish, ready to shoot somebody. Fortunately, they didn't. But yeah, the sheriff was, you know, making excuses for them and stuff like that and justifying their activity. And they watched them do their thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think it gets dismissed somewhat because it is 
kind of coming from rural areas where there's probably not a large population and also probably not a lot of local reporting that's really covering this. Yeah, well, it is. It's re- actually re- become really hard for local reporters to report on this stuff, except when they commit crimes and that sort of thing. Then, then you'll see some local reportage on it, or when you know somebody when when their activities become too egregious. But for the most part, most of the best reporting on this stuff is actually coming out of you know papers like those in Boise and Spokane and and stuff like that because they they have a certain amount of insulation from the pressures that small town journalists face. Uh, yeah. Listen Tribune still does a good job on that in that regard. But I feel very fortunate to have grown up with the spokesman review as my local paper. It was a very phenomenal resource to have growing up. Uh, they punched way over their weight looking back at it. Yeah. Especially considering their ownership, you know, they came out of that era of post Watergate where there were, you know, actual principles of journalism that they tried to uphold. Right. And, staff full of people who really believed in that stuff so well cool um switching gears a little bit i wanted to talk about russia because i know your coverage goes back a really long time and i found it fascinating going through your archives but your coverage of far-right groups in russia it does go back to the early days of putin's time in power and the aughts and I think that makes you uniquely qualified to comment on the similarities between extremism here and in the United States and Russia. And I have a couple of questions. We'll see what we get to. But first, uh, can you explain a little bit about how extremists help Putin consolidate power in Russia? Well, I'm, it's actually, it's, that's not particularly my uh, bailiwick. Let's put it this way. Putin used... Uh, extremist rhetoric, particularly beginning around 2010-2014, between 2010 and 14, to really consolidate his authoritarian power um, by scapegoating uh, the gay community, LGBTQ people, and you know passing the laws. I think what were they in 2013 to prohibit gay behavior and things like that. Right. Of course, this was just part of his larger scheme of consolidating power, which also included his his overseas wars and you know wars in uh, <laughs> places that you know like Chechnya. But you know he used the military to consolidate power as well. But he did it locally. You know he consolidated power within the Russian culture largely by you know using the classic fascist formula or authoritarian formula for that matter, which is to find a handy scapegoat. Uh, which happened to be the LGBTQ community, and um, making them the focus of a sort of eliminationist campaign. And then he did it with the full uh, support and collusion of the Russian Orthodox Church and other cultural factors, very arch-conservative. And this is also the same time when uh, American Christian nationalists started working with him right around 2014 is when we saw the uh, what is it? The World Council of Churches, I think they call themselves, um, begin developing ties with Russia that uh, was all about, you know, supporting the anti-homosexual agenda. And they built themselves, frankly, with the help of support of a lot of Russian oil oligarchs into a global organization that organizes anti-gay Christian nationalists around the world. Yeah, if you look at a lot of the donations, a lot of the charities and funds of the the oligarchs in Russia, even some of the Jewish oligarchs and Muslim oligarchs, they're giving money to the Orthodox Church, which we know Putin has been really behind and and he professes that faith. Whether or not he believes it is probably an open question, but it is easier, I think, for them to justify that when they uh, sort of couch it in that idea of well this is this is just what the Bible says this is what God teaches and and I, I saw you you writing about that and talking about that but we are we are seeing a lot of similarities today in the U.S. Um, so I wonder how you how you see that if you see us on a similar trajectory and is is the current political environment moving us closer to authoritarian capture here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, you know, if you look at what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, um, essentially trying to impose an 
authoritarian state. They're, they're even talking about uh, outlawing the Democratic Party down there. <laughs> Saw that. <laughs> That's uh, good luck to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, the the way they're handling academia, the way that they have abrogated local authorities by uh, removing elected local officials from office and putting DeSantis's uh, minions in their place. This is Banana Republic stuff. But it is, I mean, it's a, a classic authoritarian recipe. And it's one that Putin has been promoting around the world. I have researcher friends who call this a global right-wing power grab, and I think that that's fundamentally what we're seeing. I mean, but it's, I'm not one of those journalists who's going to focus on on sort of the global aspects of it, because what, of course, Putin is doing, and the sort of this, this authoritarian movement that I think is actually supported by um, some of our own oligarchs, people like Peter Thiel, or I was even at Elon Musk. Now, I think it's pretty clear what Musk is doing to Twitter, and you know, I, I think that they there is this desire to replace liberal democracy with autocratic rule, Trump style, DeSantis style autocratic rule, uh, where you have a strong man running, running everything and deciding everything, and power concentrated in the hands of a few elites. And I don't think that they're actually disguising their their intentions too much. You, you have Trump posting on Truth Social that we should just <laughs> abolish the Constitution, and some of the politics that DeSantis is doing there. He's just blatantly, blatantly violating the First Amendment down there. They passed a, or they're trying to pass a bill down there now that. Uh, this just came out today that if you comment on DeSantis at all, you have to register with the state of Florida or they're going to fine you. That's their newest. And it's kind of like, you know, good luck enforcing that, pal. But no, it just kidding. shows you something about where their heads are. Right, right. And and that's, I, I think, the, the larger trend that we're dealing with. Um, that, you know, I mean, these right-wing extremists have, of course, always been there. So they make very... Uh, valuable foot soldiers, and that's you know who we saw unleashed on January sixth. Is those same foot soldiers? Yeah, I do feel like they're putting out some trial balloons with with the the bill you talked about today, and it's not clear if it'll get passed. But at this point, it's maybe they they sure might. Yeah, yeah. absolutely on the libs. It made me think of something I saw recently with. Christopher Rufo, who has spearheaded this capture of New College in Florida, which DeSantis is on board with. He appointed Rufo, who's the anti-woke, anti-CRT Republican right now, who's kind of a a budding star over there. But I saw Rufo posting a few days ago a critique of what he's doing at New College by Curtis Yarvin, who's used to blog under the name Mencius Moldbug. He's received funding from Peter Thiel, but I don't know if you've you've dealt with him directly. Yeah, oh, I know Yarvin. No, I haven't dealt with Yarvin directly. Uh, I just have written about him a bit. He's an extremist, and he, he was someone that a few years ago, nobody on the right really wanted to say his name out loud. And now he's part of polite conversation, or at least it's not news, when J.D. Vance or Blake Masters or Christopher Rufo brings him up. This is Chris Rufo talking about Curtis Yarvin. There was an article that came out this week that I think deserves some attention because it's something that's a little bit different. It's a little bit more interesting. It's a little bit more unique. It's from a writer named Curtis Yarvin. And if you don't know Curtis Yarvin, he is a neo-reactionary philosopher. Uh, He has a kind of cult following within, let's say, the conservative movement, but actually also people that are on the far left or the post-Marxist movement. Um, He's a really unique figure, someone with whom I don't agree on everything. uh, But I've met Curtis. uh, uh, I have kind of a personal uh, affection for Curtis. I think he's a very smart person that always has uh, a a unique opinion, uh, even if it's one that is somewhat transgressive. And this is a guy who wants to destroy the state. He wants to replace it with an authoritarian leader. And this is normalized now. Yeah. Well, did did you see uh, Rufo's recent tweet about where he talked about how they're going to be displacing the students at New College? 
yeah having them and eventually we'd get we'll replace the student body with people who are what, more mission uh mission focused i believe was the phrasing focused, yeah um, which is just straight up, you know, authoritarian. Very almost evangelical slash authoritarian phrasing there, yeah. that language. Yeah. Really. Well, and, and, and so this fits into Rufo's background. I've known about Rufo for quite some time and have been, I've actually written about him quite a few times because he's from my neck of woods here. He's originally from the Seattle area and made his bones working for the Discovery Institute. Right. Creationist um, think tank based in Seattle that has been trying to creep, um, you know, creationist uh, science into the nation's classrooms. And of course, they've been incredibly frustrated for years. So Rufo has basically come up with this strategy of working around all these roadblocks that the uh, Christian nationalist right has have been frustrated by for decades, and the main one is, of course, he started out. Uh, you know, one of the basically for his technique, it involves an extreme amount of deception as well as turning facts upside down on their heads, and this is something that he actually perfected when he was running for city council in Seattle and he was he was he was big on the homelessness thing and he was going around saying that the problem is there's this homelessness lobby that is preventing the city from passing effective legislation to uh, to deal with the problem and uh, you know very conspiratorial sort of thing and you know it was all about scapegoating and finding that you're creating a scapegoat. And he did real poorly in the city council election, claimed he was being threatened uh, by people and moved his family over to Kitsap Peninsula, which is where I think his operations are now. Uh, although it sounds like he's in Florida all the time now, huh. messing things up down there. And, you know, this is when he started perfecting the, first he did the critical race theory, panic over critical race theory in schools. And it was so effective that, of course, he picked it up and ran with it, as well as things like uh, the anti, anti-gay, anti-trans uh, rhetoric around groomers, uh, which he uh-huh. had a great deal in promoting. And he and Shia Rychik, um, of libs of TikTok do a lot of coordination in terms of promoting this anti-gay agenda, and uh, you know, it, but it's all consistently the same thing. And it's like I said, his the key to his technique is to present basically a, a, a falsified narrative and wrap it up into a simple slogan and have everyone buy it. <laughs> Turn it into a hashtag and make it popular. And pretty soon, as he's he's been explicit, you know, that it doesn't really matter if, if it's true or not. You know, what, what matters is that when people hear uh, about any kind of, like, race history, they think CRT, right? And he's been very successful at doing that. Right. Well, speaking of people who aren't really concerned about whether things are particularly truthful or not that have enormous platforms, uh, you wrote a recent article for Daily Coast entitled Right-Wing Pundits Leap on Ohio Disaster as Proof that Biden Administration is Waging a War on Whites, which, as you wrote, was a narrative that got a lot of mileage out of the right. Tucker Carlson chimed in by saying of the situation, quote, we can tell you that the Biden administration doesn't seem too concerned about it either way. Donald Trump got over 71% of the vote in the county in the last presidential election. That's not exactly the Democratic Party's core demographic. Fentanyl, toxic waste spill, whatever. They're not our voters, unquote. It's a familiar talking point for Tucker, and I know you've covered him a lot in recent years. Uh, My question is, if you have a sense of what motivates him to be this way, he may claim he's not a white nationalist, but he certainly plays one on TV. Is this (laughs) purely fun for him or what? Yeah, there's there's a reason he's Andrew Anglin's favorite TV pundit, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, well, Tucker has been doing this for some time. I, you know, I've never met the man, and I haven't, and I haven't really talked to anyone who really has, and um, have no sense of what his 
personal motives are why he's doing this. Um, if he really believes this stuff or if he's just playing a game, which I, and I suspect very much the latter. Um, but he knows what sells. And I think they've, just, they've looked at propaganda techniques uh, that have worked in the past, and they've basically tried to adopt those, particularly when it comes to responding to, you know, the post-January 6th environment uh, in which he's, you know, built this whole narrative, fabricated this narrative about the FBI orchestrating the, the poor hapless mob on January 6th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. The Antifa FBI. Yeah, Pretty well, impressive. you know, Antifa, they, he never, he never really pulled out the Antifa card. What he does have is this larger narrative, um, which is part of what makes him so popular with white nationalists, which is that that white working-class Americans are under attack from liberals, um, and that their way of life and white conservatives and their way of thinking is, are going to are being you know constantly under assault from a sort of liberal cabal of you know political leaders and media figures and so on and so forth. That it's you know it's very conspiratorial. Of course, by making the making white working people the victims of this supposed conspiracy, you know that's who he's trying to reach out to. And of course, that really, in a nutshell, is also what Donald Trump's whole deal was. That's his that was his whole appeal as well. That you know he was appealing to the white working class as he was going to be their champion. And that's why, you know, a lot of people bought it. <laughs> right, unfortunately. Millions and millions of people bought it. And, you know, and so I think that's what Tucker's been out there selling, partly because he knows that that's the larger narrative that he needs to fit everything into. And so he constantly comes up with new iterations of it, including most recently the uh, train derailment in East Palestine you know, which is, as you mentioned in that post, he, he's he was calling, saying they were waging war on white people. Um, yeah. Or no, that was actually Charlie Kirk who said that. But uh, that was also part of uh, Tucker's narrative throughout the week was that, you know, white working people were being ignored by the Biden administration because they're not his voters. And of course, ironically, I remember back in the Trump years when he was constantly threatening blue states to withhold their yeah. <laughs> disaster benefits. It was it was pretty atrocious. And let's not get into the stuff Jared Kushner said about the blue states during the pandemic in terms of, right. you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, in, and in fact, pandemic relief went to the red states first. Yeah. So I listened to you on another podcast that you've done, and you talked about how people have dismissed you and saying you've had alarmist rhetoric and all this. And I think we're looking at how extreme the GOP mainstream is now. And uh, it may be kind of hard at times to to convince people how bad it is, but I think you know how bad it is. I think we see it. But you've been doing this for over 30 years. You've covered right-wing extremism extensively. You know how these groups operate and the different threats that they've posed. Have you ever been more concerned about the dangers that these groups, the, the right-wing extremists, pose than you are right now? No. <laughs> Maybe right around the election of 2020, I was very, very concerned then. I could see what was going to happen. I knew there was going to be some kind of assault on Congress just because of everything that Trump was doing. I didn't know how he was going to do it, but it looked pretty obvious, you know, after he sent out that will be wild tweet. You know, that was the that was a clearing call to all these patriots and militias and oath keepers and proud boys. They're loaded for bear. And there were a number of us who were warning of that, warning that it was gonna be a shit show. It was worse than I actually expected, but not as bad as I feared. I, I really thought that if all the cards fell right they could cause some real damage. But I also had a pretty decent amount of confidence in the ability to keep uh, members of Congress safe and secure. So turned out to be right, but just barely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty near thing. I read somewhere that Nancy Pelosi got out of her office about two minutes before the crowd showed up. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched the video of Ashley Babbitt being shot. Yeah. But, but when they got to this glass door at the speaker's office and they were breaking the windows 
on the barrier uh, to outside. They were looking inside, and she was one of the people there with her face pressed to the glass who saw there were actually still filing members of Congress out of the House. Uh, it was like the last vestiges to clear the House. But you could see them down the hallway. And she saw them down the hallway, and she went apeshit and started pounding on the glass break and you know she she wanted to get at those guys and that's why she leaped through that window and that's why she got shot yeah it really was a poor choice that she made to do that that day you really you don't want to see anybody get shot you don't want to see anybody get hurt but she had choices that she could have made that would have turned out differently for her if she had made them I guess is the yeah, nicest way yeah. i can say it so Going back a little bit, you were, we talked a little bit about Spokane and the Spokesman Review being one of those great papers. Uh, for a long time, they had a journalist by the name of Bill Moreland, who was absolutely legendary in this field, one of the first people to cover the radical right in this part of the world and kind of see where it was all going. He's the person who ended up coining the term Ruby Ridge to refer to the 1992 standoff between Randy Weaver and the federal government. And you got to work with him quite a bit over the years. <laughs> I was a huge fan of his. And um, can you kind of talk a little bit about Bill Moreland and what it was like to work with him? Well, you know, when I finally met Bill, I didn't finally meet Bill till uh, winter of 96. And by the time I did, he was very much already a legend among, you know, as journalists in the Northwest. Partly because everyone, I mean, he was just you're the consummate shoe leather journalist who, you know, got all his facts squared, kept everything on the level, was really a, a hard-nosed straight news reporter as much as he could be. He didn't let a lot of his personal perspectives creep into his reportage. Um, he was really a straight news guy, but he had to, he was utterly fearless and particularly in confronting and dealing with these guys, you know, who's made his bones covering these Aryan Congresses that they had there in Hayden. Right. Uh, at the at the Aryan Nations, uh, uh, you know, they gather white supremacists from around the country there once a year at these Aryan Congresses. And this included... Ku Klux Klansmen and, you know, of course, members of the National Alliance, which was uh, William Pierce's organization that uh, peddled the, the Turner Diaries to, to people like Robbie Matthews. And, yeah, we had, uh, of course, quite a bit of criminality. You know, he was covering all the criminality that came out of the Aryan Nations, including the Order. You know, he spoke to Matthews quite a few times. And... Um, was you know present there several of those events in Spokane where Matthews made a scene, right? You know, and then Matthews, of course, became the leader of the order, and uh, they were up what twenty eight banks and armored cars, and uh, and said assassinated a Denver radio talk show host named Alan Berg, and you know that was all in nineteen eighty four one year, and then it was just a wave of it was. Ex a succession of crimes. After that, there was an outfit called the Order Two that tried bombing the uh, the house of a local uh, Catholic priest named Bill Wasmuth, who organized uh, the local chamber of commerce and other people in Coeur d'Alene to you know stand right. up neo Nazis in their midst. I interviewed Bill when I was in high school for a term paper I did. Oh uh, yeah, Boy, yeah. That guy was man. He was amazing. Here's Bill Moreland talking about Bill Wasmuth. After the order, there was the order too. And, and one of the things they did was bomb the home of this man, Bill Wasmuth, who was a Catholic priest in uh, Coeur d'Alene. He was one of the original members of the uh, Kootenai County Task Force. And they targeted him simply because uh, he was involved with the human rights thing, uh, effort there in Coeur d'Alene. He went on to become the uh, executive director of the Northwest Coalition Against Hate, which involved uh, five or six states, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Colorado, and Oregon. And um, uh, it was just an amazing human being who, who saw firsthand, you know, what this kind of hate can result in. When they come to your house and plant a bomb with the intention of killing you, uh, it sends a shiver down your spine. And no one knows that, knew that better than Bill Lasma. He, uh, he passed uh, a few years back uh, after a lengthy illness, but he was one fine fellow and and did a lot for civil rights 
He's a great man. And uh, yeah, he was actually, you know, he was the guy who talked me into. <laughs> so uh, part of the deal was that in 95, um, after Oklahoma City, I had gone out. I was an environmental reporter. And but I had started writing about militias organizing in the Northwest as uh, an environmental backlash story because that was how they were organizing these militias out here was uh, you know a reaction against uh, environmental initiatives. They had all these mm-hmm. UN conspiracy theories revolving around the effort to create a Cascades a Cooperative Biosphere Agreement with Canada and. Um, and, you know, of course, there were all the black helicopter and hel- blue-helmeted UN soldier sightings that uh, accompanied all this stuff. And, and uh, Militia Montana even trotted out uh, these maps of where the concentration camps were going to be. FEMA camps goes back quite a long ways on this one. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It really does. But so I was... Uh, going to some of these meetings beginning around 93, 94. And then when Oklahoma City happened, uh, you know, I was one of the only reporters who reported on this, and I was doing a fair amount of media appearances because I was. And um, and and I, Bill was my frequent source on all this stuff, and I was going to gatherings with, with, with Eric Ward, who worked for Bill. Right. And the night of, uh, they had this big convocation in Seattle with researchers like, you know, Lenny Zeskind and Chipperley and Mark Potok coming out and all to, to talk about, you know, forming a, a strategy post Oklahoma City on how we would deal with the radical right. And I wasn't really a privy to that particular conversation or convocation much. I did participate in a later one two years later um but uh but i was invited to hang out with them all at the old hurricane cafe oh i miss the hurricane (laughs) (laughs) we all went down there for drinks after the convocation and bill bent my ear for the better part of an hour talking to me about you know what their issues with journalists were as far as uh how they handled this stuff uh, the way most journalists kind of parachute into these stories when something terrible happens and then go away and, and nobody is accruing institutional knowledge. Right. And of course, the one shining counter example of that was Bill Moreland, because Bill had been doggedly on this beat and he had basically made right wing extremism his beat, although he was still uh, officially a cops and courts reporter, but there was so much of this shit going on over there in, oh, in this yeah. can area that he was very very busy covering these right-wing extremists because like i said it was it was a string of various things from the order two there was also this plot to bomb a gay bar in downtown seattle and up in capitol hill they were going to bomb neighbors right there was a group of nazis drove out from Aiden lake to the plan to do that you know they all got arrested at their hotel so Shucks. Yeah, so it was just a constant thing. And so, you know, basically Bill convinced me to make this my beat. And wow. so yeah, I can do that. Wow. I, I, I grew up in Idaho. I know how to talk to these guys. I understand some of the motives and understand how people get drawn into this stuff. It doesn't mean that I excuse it or anything like that. I just no. know how it happens. It's, it's just incredibly toxic. What I will say is that over the 35 years that I have been around this stuff, and that's that includes in the late 70s when Aryan Nations was first moving in, and I was the editor of the Sandpoint paper, and it's just been nothing but an endless stream of human misery, social dysfunction, criminality, and you know lethal toxicity. You know, it makes for great news stories, but uh, it's, it's bad for the country. Absolutely is. I remember growing up. In Spokane, I used to go to a lot of punk rock shows, and every summer we would get those guys coming out to shows because they had what they called Aryan Youth Assembly, probably about the same time as the convocations that they had in Hayden Lake. So we would get half the skinheads in the country, it seemed like, sometimes showing up. And, of course, they liked nothing better than to start start a bunch of shit with the punks. Of course. So we would get these people showing up at the shows that, you know, would just be there looking to fight, giving people a bad time. And some of these people later went on to be like the Kehoe brothers. <laughs> right. You know, it's very just terrifying when you look back and realize they it. never saw. I mean, that's no. the thing about it is, that, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty steady source of 
news <laughs> stuff for me to write about over the last 35 years or so. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Did you ever see Green Room? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I just love the scene in Green Room where, so it's basically about a band where that goes out to play somewhere in the deep, dark Northwest <laughs> backwoods <laughs> into this backwoods bar. Turns out to be a Nazi hangout. <laughs> and they're a punk <laughs> band. So the first song they, they play is Nazi punk fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you, got, you got one shot that's it <laughs> that's what you bust out <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it's amazing anyway yeah no recommended <laughs> i'll definitely have to check that out cool yeah, patrick stewart makes a really great bad guy in this movie so oh. <laughs> well i never did f- finish my bill moreland story yeah no I, I just suddenly re- realized oh yeah so i finally met bill in in the winter of 96 when we were both covering the Freeman standoff out in Jordan, Montana. Uh, this is Montana Freeman. I don't know if you remember those yeah, guys. Yeah, no, I remember. They, they still hold the record for the longest armed standoff with federal authorities at 81 days. And it was, you know, it was basically a test case for the FBI to figure out how to d- deal with these guys better, and they did. And eventually, they wound up arresting everyone at the end of the deal, and nobody got killed. Yes. So, but uh, it was it was it was the worst thing to cover in the world. <laughs> it was just it was winter in in out there in Jordan, and I don't know if you've ever been to Jordan in the winter. I've been to Montana in the winter, and it is cold as a oh my god. Yeah, yeah, up on the high line or any of those eastern eastern uh, towns, it's all the same. The wind howls. Uh, it's colder than you would believe if you haven't been there really cold you know it was good 10 below when i was we were hanging out there fortunately there's a really good bar in jordan called the hell creek tavern uh which was where we could go and hang out after freezing our asses off all day (laughs) and and i will say this about bill he loved his beer and most and he he really loved to tell his stories because he had a million freaking stories from all his years covering this stuff and he loved to tell them so he was he was a great company yeah, a very garrulous guy. You know, he was grew up and born and raised in Spokane and used to deliver the old Spokane Chronicle when he was a teenager. And he was, you know, a very straight and narrow guy. He had been married to the same woman for 50 years. So, And, you know, he just was really dedicated to his craft. And um, I finally get to actually start working with him all the time. Uh, you know, we stayed in touch after 96 and the end of the Freeman standoff. Because um, I was working for, I was freelancing for a number of people uh, at the time, mostly the Washington Post. But uh, I started doing some freelancing for SPLC too. So we we stayed in touch, and then in 2013, the SPLC hired us both as bloggers for the Hate Watch site, and we were the only people outside of Montgomery, Montgomery to actually be working <laughs> on the Hate Watch site. So we had this whole Northwest contingent out here of him and me. Nate flies there to Montgomery once a year, and we'd hang out. But Bill and I worked together on a lot of stories. Frequently, I'd wind up backing him up. He wound up taking the lead, for instance, on the on the Malheur standoff, which I was more than happy to let him do because it looked like just a repeat of the Freeman standoff where yeah. you go, freeze your ass out in the cold and stand around and talk to other reporters all day long and then go like, go, hmm, what am I going to report today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Bundys are doing their thing again. This uh, yeah. seemed so familiar watching all of that, remembering the Freeman standoff in Montana. It was like, wow, this is just like, yeah. like, Somebody says all the time, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. Yeah, yeah, and it was definitely sort of a deja vu for us. Um, but yeah. but I want to, you know, what I was doing was covering the same stuff with monitoring the Internet activity and providing videos for him and audio and interviews and things like that. So I was basically backing Bill up or backstopping Bill on that story. Now, that's interesting. The right especially the white supremacist end of the right, got to the internet really early. That was one of the things that they were right on. I've mm-hmm. heard stories about some of the money from those order armored car robberies being used to get some of these guys online in the early days, guys like 
Louis Beam were going around and spearheading that little project. This is Louis Beam talking about information war. Several people have said that I have an ability to deal with, with the written word or the spoken word, and that may or may not be true, but there's obviously a consensus among you or you wouldn't be here that perhaps I have that ability. Well, I believe in letting the facts speak for themselves. We're going to be talking about today the effective use of the word. Now, there's a lot of ways to fight the enemy. And right now we're in the word war. It's the use of the words. It's a war of ideals at this point. Do you see, like, any parallels between what those guys were trying to do and what it looks like now from their end? Because it seems like they really figured out how this all works a lot earlier than a lot of people did. Yeah, well, I, I, obviously the the far right's ability to leverage the Internet as an open platform was, you know, in a lot of ways basically based on the fact that they had been frustrated for so many years by an establishment that had basically been able to uh, blunt their spread by denying them platforms denying them the ability to reach large numbers of people and denying them the ability to connect uh, culturally and socially and get their messages into the mainstream. And, you know, this is so many of them uh, initially, I mean, the stuff that Lewis Beam was doing uh, was mostly around being able to spread things with, you know, connect with their like-minded people in ways that they couldn't before and that would be relatively safe and secure for them to do um, because security was a big thing for them after uh, 1986 when they all got taken to federal court for seditionist conspiracy. They, they, they won. Uh, this is the big trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas. But they also learned a lot of lessons there about you know how, how to avoid getting into legal jeopardy and of course the two main the two main strategies that beam elucidated and which became more or less a template for the radical right from then on was you know first was leaderless resistance this idea of forming independent cells like militia cells uh, that are spread out all around the country and aren't necessarily organizationally or any other way actually connected to the ideological leaders who are leading the movement. And this, of course, uh, insulates those leaders from any kind of legal liability for whatever action these cells may take. And in a related way, his second recommendation was to, you know, push this strategy of domestic terrorism, where, you know, individual true believers who, again, once again, have no connection to the organizations or uh, the movement leaders or any of that stuff in a way that could actually taint or bring them down, can go out and, you know, commit acts of mass murder as a way of terrorizing the minority communities and undermining undermining democracy. I mean, the, the whole point of domestic terrorism isn't just to the momentary terror that they spread. Their intent is to make the larger society feel that democracy, that liberal democracy, can't keep them safe and secure anymore. And that's what they set out to do. Right. It's it's interesting you you mentioned that tactic of you know the separation giving you giving them some uh, freedom from any sort of liability or consequences that they would suffer because it just reminds me of like libs of TikTok targeting that the Boston Children's Hospital because they were doing health services for trans children and if you think about uh, January six you had people storming the Capitol, but the the biggest influencers, the people that pushed those stolen election lies uh, the most, by and large, have not suffered any real consequences. If anything, they're they're doing better now than they were before. And I I can't imagine that there's a coincidence with that. I mean there's a playbook here. People have have learned some things from the from the past. And I guess part of my question would be I know you've spent a lot of time talking about eliminationist rhetoric and how it relates to neo-fascism. And a lot of the focus now from the far right is is not as much on 
Jews, there's there's always anti-Semitism in the movement. It is talked about, but really their their focus is LGBTQ people. And do you think they they realize that oh, we don't want to get called a Nazi? Even Andrew England gets mad or upset if you call him a Nazi. Yeah. Do do you think they've actually learned anything or do you think anything has actually changed or is this just a, a branding like so that we can have that, they can have that separation between who they are and what Nazis are? Well, you know, it's like I say, it's been a major project for people on the radical right to uh, get their stuff into the mainstream for, for as long as I've been covering them. And, you know, they're just having a lot more success now, mainly because of, their ability to leverage social media and other internet platforms. Uh, everything from, they, I mean, they've been able to invade basically every corner of our lives in ways that we aren't even recognizing. Video gaming, they, they get into these chat rooms and mm-hmm. recruit kids uh, who are hanging out, having chats and uh, talking about video games. Basically, neo-fascism always has to have a set of scapegoats. And they'll vary, you know, for, I would say, you know, Robert Paxton uh, identifies the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s as sort of the prototypical uh, neo-fascist organization prior to the rise of uh, fascism in, in Europe. And and I think he's right, you know, because they, they use the same sort of eliminationist rhetoric that's aimed at scapegoating. Like I say, the scapegoats will vary. For the Klan, it was black people and Jews and Catholics right. <laughs> in the 20s. For the Nazis, it was Jews, as well as queers and, you know, socialists and communists, right? Yeah, and the Romani. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the hatred of communism is, you know, the anti-communist stuff is very much a huge window for right-wing extremists, to enter into the mainstream in all of these situations, both in Europe and in the United States. And that's always been the case. Yeah. Part of it is just whatever they think their audience wants to hear or how, how do you get somebody in the door and whatever they don't like or whatever they think they need to hate. It's okay. We're going to put that message out. And, and then you're, once you're in the door, well, we can start bombarding you with 50 other things that you have to hate. Yeah, there there are three uh, central components to authoritarian personalities that these people are basically exploiting and manipulating. Basically, they're what we call authoritarian personalities. They actually have a wide variety of traits, but the attitudinal clusters that are for, sort of from the core of it are the first is uh, authoritarian submission, which is the the belief that in order to have a safe and secure society, we all must submit to the will and rule of the authoritarian leader. The second is authoritarian aggression, which is aggression directed against anyone who fails to submit or anyone who is perceived as an enemy of the the, the need to submit or that safe and secure society. And then the third is conventionalism, which is this belief that basically they represent the real America that they represent the mainstream that they are. And so people like Trump and and all of these sort of neo-fascist rhetoricians that we've seen coming out of the white nationalist right all use a lot of the same techniques. And and scapegoating is really central to, you know, firing up the fires of authoritarian aggression. Yeah, definitely. So you've been covering extremists for decades now. And you're still going out there every day and reporting on the terrible things that these terrible people do. It's got to get you down sometimes. How do you keep doing it? How have you managed to stay on this for so long? I've just retired. retired I'm I'm not kidding. Uh, They had layoffs at Daily Coast and I took the package. Oh. Oh. I'm now officially retired from Daily Recorded. So we can announce it here on your podcast, guys. Wow. Are we breaking that? Oh, wow. Yeah, I think so. Breaking news. I haven't, I haven't announced it on Twitter yet, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm retired from Daily Reports. I'm going to keep writing about this for, for forever because I, I, I hate, I, I really don't enjoy the subject, i got to tell you. I have so much more fun writing about whales, which is sort of my secondary subject that I used <laughs> to keep myself uh, sane and alive. And so, yes, when you're asking, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors and I try to keep myself grounded. 
uh, unfortunately have a, a very healthy and loving family life that you know keeps me also really grounded. So I'm I'm really blessed in a lot of ways. And and yeah, uh, being being in the outdoors is, is is a lot of it. And I'm just ready to go uh, write about whales a lot more. <laughs> nice. I'm gonna keep writing about this. Obviously, I have the book coming out this summer. Um, which, uh, you know, this uh, leaving Daily Coast will give me a lot more time to help promote that. And um, I'm going to have a sub stack and I'm going to keep writing about this stuff, but I'm also going to start writing about whales more too. So definitely. uh, I actually am planning that my next book will be a book about the return of humpback whales to the Salish Sea. So, Wow. That is amazing. (laughs) I guess you, you feel like, You've had this fountain of knowledge. Maybe you didn't set out to have it, but I guess for a long time you probably felt like you had a a duty to share what you knew and and with the world. I think I have. I have. I think I have. have. And and I think most of the people in the who do this work will tell you that I'm very approachable and always make I always make time for other journalists who are doing this work because especially I'm, I'm, you know, I got to tell you about six years ago, I was really depressed that this sort of line of work was going to be falling by the wayside because nobody else was doing it back then. It was back 2014, 2015. Right. Yeah, this is when I wrote my whale book. I was like, okay, <laughs> time to do something different. But since Trump and since the lid got lifted off the national lid and all the demons came flying out. I think that there has been a tremendous response by particularly like a lot of these younger journalists who are really doing great work on this stuff. I think there's also been, you know, podcasters like yourselves and people who, who pay attention and, and understand that this is a problem, that the narrative that we get from mainstream media editors frequently which is that oh you're just exaggerating i mean i can't tell you how many times i've heard over the years that oh is this really a problem i mean these guys are just out there on the fringe you know (laughs) yeah 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 they're just on the fringe and they're working their way in (laughs) and you need to pay attention you know and that's what i've been telling people for years there there was definitely a downturn in right-wing uh organizing after 9-11 right but even then i could still see them i was watching them churn one of their main outlets of course back then was the immigration issue and, and creating these border vigilante groups Minutemen and people like that that was very much a manifestation of the patriot movement but also you know it was just a, it was a period where I was just seeing this spread of hateful, eliminationist rhetoric really working its way into the mainstream from the mainstream right. And a lot of authoritarian responses to what should have been the voice of democracy in dealing with things like the Iraq War. So, yeah. you know, I think I think that's actually when we got into an authoritarian mood after 9-11. And it actually makes sense because one of the things that can definitely induce an authoritarian response in the public is fearfulness, is spreading fear. And boy, by God, we were fearful back then. Oh, we were. We definitely yeah. were. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on with us. This has been really yeah, great. So you've, you've definitely earned a quiet retirement if you want to go that way because you've been doing this you know, so long and, you know, just put so much out. I, when we were researching this, I just couldn't believe how many things you've written on and how many just, we, I could talk about your work for hours at this point, but thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time tonight. Hey, it was, it was really a pleasure. It's always fun to have good conversation, good questions. And I'm like Bill. I love to talk. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't have as many good stories as Bill, but Oh, you've got a few. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for all the work that you've done over the years. And we, we really do look forward to your book and uh, hope that you can stick around and you can tolerate it and we can use you as a resource uh, in the future. We definitely want to have you on again when the book comes out. Please, please, please. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, just let's, uh, it's coming out June 27th. So I, I'm happy. I'm going to be doing a I, I think a lot of podcasts, but um, I'll definitely uh, make sure you guys get word. Uh, let me know if we can get copies of the book to you and that sort of thing. That'll be amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Well, thank hey, you. thank you very much. You have yourself a good night, and we will hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Griff. Thanks, Take Jay. care. 
Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word four, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza, B-J-J, G-R-Z-A, B-J-J, as well as D-N-W pod. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.